This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of perineal tendon tears and instability. From the foot and ankle section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Perineal tendon tears and instability represent a spectrum of traumatic injuries to the lateral ankle that include tenosynovitis, tendinopathy, tendon tears, and or tendon instability. Diagnosis is made clinically with subfibular ankle pain with a sensation of apprehension or subluxation with active dorsiflexion and eversion against resistance. MRI studies can help identify the size of perineal tendon tear and identify concomitant injuries to nearby structures. Treatment may be non-operative or operative depending on patient activity demands, chronicity of injury, and perineal instability. Now, let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, as far as incidence, perineal tendon tears are seen in 23 to 77% of all cases of lateral ankle instability. In terms of prevalence, perineal tendon tears comprise 4% of all ankle injuries. In terms of demographics, tendon instability is seen in young athletic populations. Moving on to etiology, as far as pathophysiology and mechanism of injury, perineal tendon tears and instability can be secondary to rapid forced dorsiflexion of the inverted foot that will cause strain through the contracted perineal muscles, leading to a superior perineal retinaculum or SPR tear. The most common pattern is longitudinal split tears in the peroneus brevis. If the superior perineal retinaculum tears, tendons will become unstable and subluxate or completely dislocate. Associated conditions include lateral ligamentous instability, specifically of the ATFL and CFL, cabovarus hind foot alignment, Charcot-Marie tooth, low-lying muscle belly of the peroneus brevis, and large peroneal tubercle in 29% of the population, accessory peroneus cordis or quintus in 10 to 34% of the population, a flat or concave retromalleolar sulcus in 18% of the population, an os perineum, as well as a calcaneal malunion and subfibular impingement. Now, let's go over some relevant anatomy. In terms of muscle innervation and biomechanics, the peroneus brevis is innervated by the superficial perineal nerve, which receives contributions from S1. The peroneus brevis acts as a primary everter of the foot. The tendinous portion is about 2 to 4 centimeters proximal to the tip of the fibula and lies anterior and medial to the peroneus longus at the level of the lateral malleolus. The peroneus longus is innervated by the superficial perineal nerve, which again receives contributions from S1. The peroneus longus is primarily a plantar flexor of the foot and the first metatarsal. The peroneus longus can have an ossicle, otherwise known as an os perineum, located within the tendon body near the calcaneocuboid joint. As far as space and compartment, know that perineal tendons are contained within a common synovial sheath that splits at the level of the perineal tubercle. The sheath runs in the retromalleolar groove on the fibula. The peroneus brevis is directly posterior to the fibula at the level of the groove. The peroneus longus is directly posterior to the peroneus brevis at the level of the groove. The retromalleolar groove on the fibula is deepened by a fibrocartilaginous rim, which is still only about 5 millimeters deep. This is covered by the superior perineal retinaculum, or SPR, which originates from the posterolateral ridge of the fibula and inserts onto the lateral calcaneus, which is known as the perineal tubercle. The inferior aspect of the superior perineal retinaculum blends with the inferior perineal retinaculum. Note that the superior perineal retinaculum, or SPR, is the primary restraint of the perineal tendons within the retromalleolar sulcus. At the level of the perineal tubercle of the calcaneus, the peroneus longus is inferior, the peroneus brevis is superior, and both tendons are covered by the inferior perineal retinaculum. 
The blood supply to the perineal tendons is supplied by branches of the anterior and posterior tibial arteries via the vincula system. Note that the entirety of both tendons are vascularized, and early descriptions of avascular zones have been disproven. Now, let's talk about the classification of perineal tendon tears. The ones to know include the anatomic classification of superior perineal retinaculum tears, the Rakin classification of intrasheath subluxation, as well as the Redfern and Meyerson perineal tendon tear classification. So starting with the anatomic classification of superior perineal retinaculum tears, this is divided into four grades. In grade one, the SPR is partially elevated off of the fibula and the fibrocartilaginous ridge remains intact, allowing for subluxation of both tendons. In grade two, the superior perineal retinaculum is separated from the cartilofibrous ridge of the lateral malleolus, allowing the tendons to subluxate between the superior perineal retinaculum and the fibrocartilaginous ridge. In grade 3, there is a cortical avulsion of the SPR off the fibula, allowing the subluxated tendons to move underneath the cortical fragment. Finally, in grade 4, the SPR is torn from the calcaneus, not the fibula. Moving on to the Rakin classification of intrasheath subluxation, this is divided into two types. In type 1, the peroneus longus lies deep in relation to the peroneus brevis tendon, and in type 2, the peroneus longus tendon is subluxated through a peroneus brevis tear. Moving on to the Redfern and Meyerson perineal tendon tear classification, this is divided into three types. In type 1, both tendons are intact but with partial tearing. In type 2, one tendon is intact but the majority of the other is torn. Type 3 is further subdivided into type 3A and type 3B. In type 3A, the majority of both tendons are torn, making them unusable, and the muscle belly has no excursion. In type 3b, the majority of both tendons are torn, making them unusable, but the muscle belly has excursion. Moving on to the presentation of perineal tendon tears and instability, as far as history, patients typically report feeling a pop with a distinct dorsiflexion ankle injury. There are also feelings of instability in the lateral ankle, and there may be sensation of stepping on a pebble if an os perineum is symptomatic. As far as symptom location, these injuries will manifest with lateral or posterolateral ankle pain, however may be more distal towards the fibular tip. Aggravating slash alleviating factors include active eversion and or plantar flexion, as well as passive dorsiflexion. On physical exam, inspection may reveal swelling posterior to the lateral malleolus, tenderness over the tendons, cable varus hindfoot alignment, a quote-unquote pseudotumor over the perineal tendons, as well as a voluntary subluxation of the tendons plus or minus a popping sound. Provocative tests include apprehension tests, a compression test, active circumduction, and ankle drawer testing. So in apprehension tests, the sensation of apprehension or subluxation with active dorsiflexion and eversion against resistance cause subluxation slash dislocation and apprehension. The compression test involves pain with passive dorsiflexion and eversion of the ankle. Active circumduction may recreate tendon instability. Finally, ankle drawer testing will evaluate for concomitant ligamentous instability. Moving on to imaging, recommended views on radiographs include a standard weight-bearing series. As far as optional views, the Harris view is best to visualize perineal tubercle morphology. Findings may include a quote-unquote flex sign, which is a cortical avulsion of the superior perineal retinaculum off the distal tip of the lateral malleolus. Other findings can include a plantar flex first metatarsal and high meres angle, indicating cabovarus deformity, as well as proximal migration of the os perineum, which is indicative of a peroneus longus rupture. As far as ultrasound, indications include a high degree of suspicion for tendon tears or instability. 
findings include a dynamic view of tendon subluxation as well as intersheath tendon subluxation. And in terms of sensitivity and specificity, ultrasound has 90% accuracy for tendon tears, however, is user dependent. Moving on to CT, this is indicated for calcaneus malunion and lateral wall slash subfibular impingement, and when there's concern for retromalleolar groove abnormality or an enlarged perineal tubercle. An MRI is indicated when there's a high degree of suspicion for tendon tears or instability or other concomitant pathology, such as ATFL slash CFL insufficiency and Taylor osteochondral defects. As far as views, this condition is best evaluated with axial views of a slightly plantar flexed ankle. This decreases the quote magic angle effect of the curved path of the tendons. Findings on MRI can include edema and tendon thickening indicating tendinopathy. Know that significant circumferential fluid within the sheath indicates tenosynovitis, intrasubstance tendon tears, fatty infiltration of the muscle belly, as well as accessory tendons or low-lying peroneus brevis muscle belly. In terms of sensitivity and specificity, MRI has 83 to 90% sensitivity and 72 to 75% specificity. Treatment for perineal tendon tears can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes short leg cast immobilization and protected weight bearing for six weeks, as well as a period of activity modification and boot immobilization, followed by physical therapy. Indications for short leg cast immobilization and protected weight bearing for six weeks includes all acute peroneus brevis slash peroneus longus instability in non-professional athletes. Outcomes include over 50% failure rates for chronic instability cases and failure rates as high as 83% for peroneal tendon tears. As far as indications for a period of activity modification and boot immobilization followed by physical therapy, this is indicated as first-line treatment for peroneus brevis slash peroneus longus tendinopathy, tenosynovitis, and tears. As far as outcomes, variable success rates have been reported. Operative options include repair of the superficial perineal retinaculum and deepening of the retromalleolar groove, groove deepening with soft tissue transfer and or osteotomy, tenosynovectomy and tendon debridement with tubularization, tenosynovectomy and tendon debridement without tubularization, tenodesis of the distal and proximal ends of the brevis tendon to the peroneus longus, debridement of both tendons with interposition auto or allograft, debridement of both tendons with an FHL slash FDL transfer, and a hind foot corrective osteotomy. So starting with repair of the superior perineal retinaculum and deepening of the retromalleolar groove, this is indicated for acute tendon dislocations in high-level athletes who desire a quick return to sport-slash-occupation. It's also indicated when there's a presence of a longitudinal tear. As far as outcomes, superior perineal retinaculum repair yields high rate of return to sport and excellent patient-reported outcomes. Addition of groove deepening shows a higher rate of return to sport than superior perineal retinaculum repair alone that is 83 to 100%. Moving on to groove deepening with soft tissue transfer and or osteotomy, this is indicated in the setting of chronic slash recurrent dislocations with bony abnormalities or an incompetent superior perineal retinaculum. This is generally used as a salvage procedure. In terms of outcomes, know that there are higher complication rates than superior perineal retinaculum repair and groove deepening. Moving on to tenosynovectomy and tendon debridement with tubularization, this is indicated in the setting of recalcitrant and symptomatic peroneus brevis slash peroneus longus tears less than 50 to 60% of the tendon width. Outcomes include high rates of patient satisfaction. Moving on to tenosynovectomy and tendon debridement without tubularization. This is indicated for recalcitrant cases of tenosynovitis and tendinopathy, and know that the tendinopathic tissue to be resected should comprise less than 50 to 60% of the tendon width. 
in terms of outcomes, despite increasing popularity, long-term outcomes data does not exist. Moving on to tenodesis of the distal and proximal ends of the brevis tendon to the peroneus longus. Indications include complex tears of the brevis tendon with multiple longitudinal tears and significant tenodesis that is greater than 50% of the tendon is involved. As far as outcomes, success rates are 70-80% to 80% with return to sports at 12 weeks. Moving on to debridement of both tendons with interposition auto or allograft, this is indicated for complex tears of both tendons involving over 50% of tendon substance with a preserved muscle excursion that is a Redfern and Myerson type 3b. Case series report good outcomes, but no studies have been done compared to tenodesis. Moving on to debridement of both tendons with an FHL-FDL transfer, this is indicated for complex tears of both tendons involving over 50% of the tendon substance with no muscle excursion. In terms of outcomes, there's a small case series describing good patient-reported outcomes, but with residual eversion strength deficits. Finally, in terms of hindfoot corrective osteotomy, this can be added to any case with a rigid hindfoot-driven varus or valgus alignment. As far as outcomes, there is a high failure and recurrence rate seen when the alignment is not addressed. Now, let's go over some of these management techniques in a bit more detail. So as far as a short leg cast immobilization and protected weight bearing for six weeks, as far as the technique, the tendons must be reduced at the time of immobilization and able to maintain the reduced position. The foot should be placed in slight plantar flexion and inversion. In terms of a period of activity modification and boot immobilization followed by physical therapy, as far as the technique, boot immobilization should end and physical therapy should be started once the pain at rest has completely resolved. You may incorporate a shoe orthosis to address hindfoot or forefoot-driven virus. Moving on to repair of the superior perineal retinaculum and deepening of the fibular groove, the approach will include a longitudinal incision over the perineal tendons. As far as the technique, Careful dissection should be carried out that avoids sural nerve branches. The superior perineal retinaculum can then be split longitudinally, leaving a cuff of tissue for late repair or sharply transected from the fibula. The tendons can be evaluated for concomitant tears and the groove assessed for morphology. If groove deepening is chosen, a small burr can be used to deepen the groove. Alternatively, a small drill bit can be drilled retrograde from the fibular tip through the subcortical groove bone. A tamp can then be used to depress the cortical bone and create a groove. The superior perineal retinaculum can then be repaired via direct repair, bone tunnels, or suture anchors. Moving on to groove deepening with soft tissue transfer and or osteotomy, the approach is also an open approach with a longitudinal incision over the perineal tendons. As far as the technique, treatment focuses on other aspects of perineal stability and involves groove deepening in addition to soft tissue transfers or bone block osteotomies to further contain the tendons within the sulcus. Know that plantaris grafts can be harvested or soft tissue allograft used to reinforce slash reconstruct the superior perineal retinaculum. Moving on to tenosynovectomy and tendon debridement without tubularization, the approach includes an endoscopic slash tendinoscopic technique. As far as the technique, know that the first viewing portal is started 2 cm distal to the fibular tip, and the second working portal is made 3 cm proximal to the fibular tip. Know that the tendon can be visualized and the synovium slash adhesions resected. Moving on to tenosynovectomy and tendon debridement with tubularization, the approach should be an open approach as we previously described. The technique will include a superior perineal retinaculum that will be incised longitudinally and the tendon exposed. The tendon tear location and type is then assessed and non-viable tissues are debrided. Monofilament suture is used to repair the edges of the remaining tendon to itself to create a smooth gliding tube. 
Finally, the superior perineal retinaculum is repaired. Moving on to debridement of the tendon with tenodesis of the distal and proximal ends of the brevis tendon to the peroneus longus, the approach is also an open approach that we previously described. The technique will involve a superior perineal retinaculum incised longitudinally and then the tendon exposed. The peroneus brevis tendon tear is then located and type assessed and non-viable tissues debrided. The proximal end of the peroneus brevis is then tenodesed to the peroneus longus in a side-to-side fashion, approximately 3 centimeters proximal to the fibular tip. And then finally, the distal end of the peroneus brevis is tenodesed to the peroneus longus in a side-to-side fashion approximately 2 centimeters distal to the fibular tip. And then finally, the superior perineal retinaculum is repaired. In terms of a hind foot corrective osteotomy, in terms of the approach, the incision is based on the osteotomy selected. For example, a distractive bone block subtalar fusion, Dwyer osteotomy, etc. The technique includes a neutral realignment goal of all surgical techniques. Finally, let's end this review session talking about complications. The ones to know include a sural neuroma, recurrence of perineal tendon instability, persistent pain, and tibial nerve compression. So as far as incidence of sural neuroma, this is the most common complication following surgery given the proximity to the perineal tendons. Moving on to recurrence of perineal tendon instability, risk factors include unaddressed ankle malalignment. Treatment includes a corrective osteotomy with or without soft tissue reconstruction. Moving on to persistent pain, risk factors include over-tightening of the superior perineal retinaculum repair, causing tendon stenosis. Finally, tibial nerve compression is seen following FHL transfer. As far as prevention, be sure to release adhesions between the FHL and neurovascular bundle. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic might be tested. First question. Which of the following physical examination findings would suggest injury to the superior perineal retinaculum? And the choices are 1. Positive ankle anterior drawer test. 2. Positive external rotation stress test. 3. Crepitus over the anterolateral ankle joint. 4. Palpable tendon snapping over the fibula during ankle dorsiflexion. And 5. Tenderness at the base of the fifth metatarsal with ankle eversion. The correct answer to this question is for palpable tendon snapping over the fibula during ankle dorsiflexion. So tearing of the superior perineal retinacular ligament can lead to perineal tendon subluxation. This can be felt during the foot and ankle physical examination by palpating for perineal tendon snapping over the fibula during ankle dorsiflexion and eversion. The superior perineal retinaculum keeps the perineal tendons contained within the retromalleolar groove of the fibula. Injury or tearing of the ligament will cause perineal tendon subluxation, which causes pain and a popping sensation over the lateral ankle. Treatment initially consists of conservative modalities, including physical therapy. Failure of non-operative treatment warrants surgical repair of the disrupted retinaculum and deepening of the groove, if needed. Walther et al. treated 23 consecutive patients with an average age of 34.2 years with a range of 16 to 57 years with symptomatic subluxation of the perineal tendon. They showed that reconstruction of the perineal retromalleolar groove and attenuation of the retinaculum significantly improved patient outcomes. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, positive anterior drawer is consistent with injury to the ATFL. Answer 2, positive external rotation stress test is consistent with injury to the syndesmotic ligament. Answer 3, crepitus over the anterolateral ankle joint suggests arthritis, OCD, loose fragment, etc. in the ankle joint. Finally, answer 5, tenderness at the base of the 5th metatarsal with ankle eversion suggests a perineal tendon tear.
And moving on to the final question. A 42-year-old patient complains of anterior and lateral ankle pain, as well as limited dorsiflexion after non-surgical management of a displaced intraarticular calcaneus fracture. Imaging shows subtalar joint arthrosis, lateral wall exostosis, and loss of calcaneus height. What would be the best management? And the choices are 1. Posterior tibial tendon transfer, plus or minus vertical slide calcaneal osteotomy. 2. Achilles tendon lengthening and lateral wall exostectomy. 3. Superior perineal retinaculum repair, plus or minus sural nerve neurolysis. 4. Subtalar bone block arthrodesis, lateral wall exostectomy, plus or minus Achilles tendon lengthening. And 5. Tibiotalocalcaneal nailing. The correct answer to this question is 4. Subtalar bone block arthrodesis, lateral wall exostectomy, plus or minus Achilles tendon lengthening. So calcaneal malunion is a common problem with non-operative management. The classic indication for bone block arthrodesis is anterior ankle pain and limited dorsiflexion, secondary to impingement of the horizontal talus on the tibia. Lateral ankle pain may be due to perineal dislocation, subfibular impingement, or subtalar arthritis. In this scenario, lateral wall exostectomy would help to address the subfibular impingement. To quickly review, the calcaneal malunion is evaluated with plain radiographs and CT scan and classified according to the Steven Sanders classification. Type 1 malunions can be managed with a lateral wall exostectomy and a perineal tenolysis. Type 2 malunions can be managed with a lateral wall exostectomy, perineal tenolysis, and subtalar bone block arthrodesis using bone graft. Type 3 malunions can be managed with a lateral wall exostectomy, perineal tenolysis, subtalar bone block arthrodesis, closing wedge calcaneal osteotomy to correct varus hindfoot malalignment, or triple arthrodesis. Sanders et al. reviewed displaced calcaneal fractures. He states that perineal tendonitis can occur with non-surgical management of intraarticular calcaneal fractures. The expanded lateral wall often subluxates the perineal tendons against the distal tip of the fibula, causing impingement and pain. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, posterior tibial tendon transfer plus or minus vertical slide calcaneal osteotomy is incorrect as the limited dorsiflexion is likely due to anterior impingement of the horizontal talus on the tibia, and no tendon transfers would be required. Answer 2, Achilles tendon lengthening and lateral wall exostectomy is incorrect as there is usually relative dysfunction of the Achilles tendon due to shortening of the calcaneus. Lengthening may be required, and lateral wall exostectomy could help resolve the lateral ankle pain. However, these procedures would not address the anterior ankle pain nor the subtalar arthritis. Answer 3, superior perineal retinaculum repair plus or minus sural nerve neurolysis is incorrect as superior perineal retinaculum repair would be appropriate in the event of an isolated incompetent superior perineal retinaculum. The bone pathology needs to be addressed in this patient. Finally, answer 5, tibiotalocalcaneal nailing is incorrect as a tibiotalocalcaneal nail could be considered if there was mention of talotibial arthritis and subtalar arthritis. This procedure would not be considered in this disease unless the primary surgery failed or if there was progression of arthritis in adjacent joints. That's all for this review about perineal tendon tears and instability. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, 
please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.